Welcome to Two Guys in the Bible, a conversation on theology, culture, and God's Word. My name is Eric Leupold, and with me, as always, is uh, my brother Dylan Keniston. Dylan, how are you this morning? Doing well, brother. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing Excellent. great. Excellent. Beautiful fall day. It is beautiful day, and it was funny because as, as Emily and I were walking from our car to the uh, church uh, front door this morning, uh, Emily made the joke. She's like, you know, I almost blew over because I'm always five inches above the ground. She's in her heels. It's, it's almost blo- toppling her right over. That's true. You got a powerful watch wind. The wind effect, man. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah. but no, we we made it in safely. Right. It's a little crisp. It's a little crisp outside. A little crisp. But it is. Uh, but a, but a good day. And today uh, we're going to introduce our first episode on basically question question and answer session or the mailbag 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 so uh, a while ago we opened it up for you know every episode we opened it up for email questions and we have had received several and so today we should get a legit mailbag i'm just like like an actual like an actual bag of mail like get a p.o box and have like all these letters i mean you don't have to like send letters in a digital age but it's just that's what I'm picturing right now. Is like yeah. we have this bag of mail. It's like like Santa, not, like Santa's bag. Yeah, of like gifts. Santa's bag of gifts, gifts except it's all letters, and we just reach in. It's not like that, but it would yeah. be kind of cool. We'll get that. Ones. We'll get that. So you hear the <laughs> rustling. Yeah, exactly. And uh, winner is got that authentic mailbag that's smell right. and feel. <laughs> but this one is a printed out mailbag. It is. It is. Um, and so I got an email. Uh, from a friend of yours, Dylan. Oh yeah. Uh, named Dave Hershey. Dave Hershey. Yeah. What up, Dave? Yeah. And and by the way, if you do want your this uh, your email to be anonymous, just just let us know in the actual message, and we promise not to announce your name. But that being said, uh, uh, we will you know you know give credit where credit is due. So Dave Hershey, thank you for this question. It's kind of a lengthy question, so this might take up most of our time th- this morning. Uh, but here it is. Hey, I am an old friend from Dylan's college days. He says, hey, man. Uh Uh-oh. Scary days. That's right. (laughs) I've appreciated your podcast. Currently, I am listening to the third episode, and while I know you said you have lots of topics, I thought I'd toss you a question or two. First, I have a student who recently converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. He grew up in a typical, if there is such a thing, evangelical church. It's been good to see him grow as he moved into this church. Though I am not Orthodox, I respect the tradition and history and all that. At the same time, it's been interesting to discuss things with him now as he is repeating things I've read in defense of Orthodoxy. Essentially, we didn't have a Bible for three centuries. The church gave us the Bible. The church is then the authority. Just curious, what would you say to that? Along similar lines, other students have challenged him. Really, his conversation has been great for discussions in our group. One thing he's been challenged on is he just repeats what some authority, the church, tells him. But he's pointed out we all submit to some authority, God, the Bible, etc. I'd be interested, though, if you talk a bit about the idea of free thinkers. Is free thinking possible? I meet students who take pride in not being forced to believe things by God, religion, church, etc., Yet, I'd argue, we all submit to some authority. It's just that some of us are more aware of it. In other words, my authority may be God, Bible, Jesus, church, tradition, but yours is Freud, Marx, Nietzsche. What might you say to someone who claims they are a free thinker and you are not? Thanks, guys. God bless. Oh, man. In so, 20, 25 words or less. Yeah, 30 seconds or less, go. <laughs> free thinking, go. No, oh, so there's seems like he's got at least two questions in there. The first one related to um, orthodoxy and essentially the it seems to be the relationship between the church and the Bible. And then that kind of flows into the other question on authority slash free thinking. Yeah, yeah. So question of authority. How would you where we would begin trying to respond to that? Yeah, well, well, so a couple of thoughts, right? So, well, here's where I, I think we can begin. I just want to, you know, big shout out to uh, Christian Student Fellowship. Uh, that's, you know, so Penn State, it was where mm-hmm. I went to college. It's where I met my, my wife, Emily. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's where also I met Dave. And Dave does some some excellent work over at, um, at Christian Student Fellowship. Um, and he's over at the Berks campus. Um, you know, Penn State has a number of different Christian student ministries and CSF being one of them, but I think CSF is kind of the predominant one at this particular campus where Dave is. I just want to say I, I think it's really neat, and and I'm I'm uh, encouraged by uh, questions like this from students at a secular university. 
Mm. Um, I think it's it's good to hear uh, students leaning into these kinds of questions and conversations um, in that kind of context that often is very can be hostile, right? To, well, that's to, true. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm encouraged by that, and I'm I'm grateful for the work that Dave is doing there, and he and he raises a couple of really good questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, both of them are kind of are are related with this this undercurrent kind of being the question of of authority. So in in you know kind of example one, he's talking about there's um, somebody in particular who's converted to Eastern Orthodoxy, and it just has questions about how the you know what is the Christian's ultimate authority, mm-hmm. um, and then you know this. This young person makes a really, really good point that, you know, hey, we all submit to some authority. This kind of gets to, I'm jumping the gun a little bit to his second question. I'm showing my hand about what my, you know, what I think both of our answers would be. But um, everyone leans on some authority. Uh, There's no such thing as a brute fact. It's just a matter of um, where, like, it's just a matter of two to which authority are you going to be leaning your argument on. So you think we should address that free thinking question maybe a little bit first kind of the foundation of like okay a a i mean what he seems to be applying in the free thinking question is that you have a person that says i can be without uh authority outside of myself yeah. i'm not dependent upon anything mm-hmm. and i can be quote unquote a free thinker and so you have that side of the equation and then the other side is okay we all have authorities and then if we talk about that first, then we can address, okay, well, which authority is the final or should be the final authority right. over those things? So right. maybe, do you think that that's probably fair to look at the free thinking question first then? Yeah, we can. I mean, so so this kind of comes back to, um, you know, uh, a point that, that Kant makes. So, so Kant, Immanuel, Immanuel Kant, Kant, the philosopher. The philosopher, yeah. yeah. So, German uh, philosopher. Yeah, German philosopher. So, so Kant, I, I am not myself a, a Kantian scholar or anything like that. Um, but I, I do think that Kant hit this particular nail on the head when he asks the question, um, what is the precondition for knowledge, right? So every one of us has some kind of uh, what we can call a, a presupposition and a, a frame of reference, a worldview that mm. we bring to any kind of questions that we ask. Um, th- so I, I you know, want to be careful what I, what I say on this particular point, but sure. you know, if I may, this is one of postmodernity's strengths. If it has any, this is one oh, of them. That's dangerous. I know it is dangerous, but but you know, look at me. So I'm I'm a white male. You know, I, I guess I'm I'm 30 now, so I guess I'm kind of middle aged. You're cisgendered. I'm cisgendered. Yeah, I like all of those different categories. But th- those have have in some ways shaped who I who I am and my experiences, and ultimately the questions that I will bring to any kind of topic. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily going to, I may not raise the same or think to raise the same kinds of questions that someone from a different background might raise or ask the same or, you know, come at it with, with slightly different, uh, lenses or answers. Uh, think about the fact that we speak English, right? I mean, English is itself a cult language is a cultural phenomenon. Um, you know, there are things that are more easily captured by other uh, by other languages, or maybe I'm explaining a text in a in a biblical a biblical text, and maybe I'm unpacking it faithfully. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm making very subconscious decisions in in you know what it is exactly I'm going to uh, say about that text versus other things I might pass up. Whereas someone from a different background might make different decisions about things that they might foreground versus background. Yeah. Um, so all of that, in one sense, ought to engender humility before God's word. True. Right? Because I am myself finite, yeah. and coming at things from a particular perspective is an inevitable consequence of finitude. Yes. I am myself culturally located. Yeah, you were that born I, in the United States. Born in the United not, States. Yeah, not, not somewhere else. Saudi Arabia or, you know, somewhere yeah. else. Um, so, you know, I speak this language, not that language. I tend to think in these categories, not those categories. Um, all of those things are true. Now... But, but postmodernity goes off the rails yes. when it says that there is no such thing exactly as truth. Exactly. So now postmodernity wrongly concludes from that. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we can we we can know nothing exhaustively, and therefore we can know nothing truly. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. That is a that's false jump. That's yeah. the gap, right? Because that's not true. We can say some things that are true, mm-hmm. even if we don't know that truth in its exhaustive like you can't make omniscience a precondition of knowing anything truly or saying something truly that's because only god is omniscient yes. right so that's so that's where postmodernity goes off the rails okay what does all this have to do with like free thinking yeah well i think what what the person's getting at is 
um, you know, or, or what, you know, the question behind that is free thinking possible is say, look, you know, all of us are, all of us have a particular background and a particular heritage. Some of us were raised in Christian homes. Some of us were, were not. And some of us were, were raised in homes to think that, you know, um, you know, very, very strict empiricism. Uh, you know, like I, I will only believe that which my senses can tell me and can, can, be can validate and yes. can be measured when the problem is that like that that belief system itself cannot be tangibly <laughs> measured. Oh, yeah. Right. So so mm -hmm. that is one of the things I would say is that all of us owe and, and sta all of us stand on the shoulders of others. When we present, it could be our parents too. It could be our parents, exactly. Um, yeah. We all stand on the shoulders of others. So how we think and how we articulate mm -hmm. what we believe is a function of some of those categories, um, and that's a good thing. <laughs> like that's the way God made us in one sense. Yeah. Um, we are we are not. Um, you, you see in, in, in Revelation where some of the kings are bringing in some of their, their gifts into the new heavens and the new mm -hmm. earth. There's, you know, all of the uh, different tongues and tribes and language, languages and nations um, being, being represented in some of that. There is some sense in which uh, the cultural manifestation of what it means to be a human being is, is celebrated in, in the new heavens and the new earth. So we don't want to lose sight of that. Well, yeah, right? of course, because, I mean— <laughs> As a Christian, mm -hmm. the idea of free thinking, like being divorced from any authority, including God. It's not possible. It's not possible. Yeah. Because that's kind of what the fall of man was. When well, the serpent went up yeah. to Adam and Eve and was like, you will not, you will not die. Yeah. You know, has God really said is, is, the, is the very first question that the serpent asked. And so he sows doubt. Yep. And Adam and Eve were already designed and created to be dependent upon God yes, and not to act in a free thinking manner. So this idea of free thinking is really an act of rebellion yeah. against the king. It's a chimera. Yeah. It, it's, it's not really real. Not only is it not real, but to your point, you, it, it would be rebellious if it were. It's not real. Um, so, yeah. so, okay. So I think the first thing to say is we all uh, have some worldview or frame of reference that we bring to any kind of question that we bring to the table. We, that we bring to the table. And let me give another good example that I use a lot in my discussions with, yeah. with like atheists. I mean, David Hume, the yep. great, uh, he was an atheist philosopher, 1700s, I believe. Um, he, he came up, he not came up with, but he liked to articulate the is ought fallacy. Mm -hmm. That's one of the fallacies. Just because something is a certain way doesn't mean it ought to be a certain way. Right. But he also was the great skeptic, right? He would say, okay, uh, how do you know that fire is going to burn tomorrow? Okay, I mean, you, you can't prove it. Past past events cannot dictate future occurrences. It's the so, problem of induction. Exactly, how do you prove that the sun will rise tomorrow? Right. So the only way you can do that is to assume that the laws of nature don't change. Mm -hmm. So you have to assume a universal law or function of, the, of, of nature that way you can predict, okay, I'm not going to put my hand in the fire tomorrow because I think it'll burn me. Yep. But you can't really prove that. Yep. No, it's true. And now within that, so that's exactly the point. Now, again, I, you know, if, if, if y'all are out there and y'all are, you know, studying this, this material in a scholarly <laughs> context, I mean, please forgive us if we, if we butcher any of this. But, but I think that's exactly right. And now, you know, along comes Kant. Kant says, what is the precondition for any not for, for knowledge, period? And Hume, Kant and Hume didn't like each other. Well, but Hume right? comes, right, but then Hume comes along and says, you can't know what exactly is going to happen in the, you have to make some kind of assumption based on past experience. Yeah. So, I think we could leverage some of what, what Kant says and says, in order for us to say that anything is true or, or that there is any kind of, in order for us to draw any kind of conclusions that are intelligible about the world around about us reality, at all, yeah. about reality at yeah. all, there are certain preconditions that must be, pres that must be assumed up front. Mm -hmm. um, and so this kind of ties into... Um, you know, where, where presuppositional apologetics That's kind right. of comes in. That's right, because how do you know that we're not living in the matrix? Right, yeah, 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 that, that whole shit. You can't prove it. Right, right. I mean, we assume yeah. that this table is real, that mm -hmm. we're sitting on, that you and I are real p people that are talking to each other, Yeah. that you're not a figment of my imagination. We're not brains and vats, right? Exactly. So, you know, that we all had these assumptions. So the to think that you could be a free thinker, that you're not dependent upon any historian, 
any parent, any teaching, anything before you is not only slightly prideful and arrogant, it's kind of foolish. Yeah, exactly, I mean, exactly. It's really impossible. And now, so let me just give an example. It's one of my favorite examples to give about this exact point. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a chap who is um, ha- who's a Christian man who is debating um, an atheist philosopher, mm-hmm. um, and the atheist's name was Gordon Stein. Uh, the Christian debating him was named Greg Bonson. Um, Bonson, by the way, if, if you're interested in kind of following up with any reading on uh, apologetics and these kinds of, you know, may- maybe headier questions about knowing truth and free thinking and all the rest and how that accords with God's word. Um, he has a great book called Van Til's Apologetic. Kind of, he was a disciple of Cornelius Van Til uh, and articulated some of this from, you know, the perspective of reformed and, and presuppositional Van Til was early 1900s. Yes. And uh, Bonson died, I think, what, in the 80s? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's okay. right. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Bonson was having this debate uh, with and with Gordon Stein, who was a self-avowed atheist and empiricist, he said, "You know, I'm not going to believe anything unless you know I can." It's tangible. It's I can, tangible. It's measurable. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So at the very end of the debate, there's this great spot where Bonson says to to Stein, he's trying to make the point that like your your heart is in rebellion to that which you know to be true, right? You are suppressing the truth mm-hmm. per Romans one, and he, he's trying to make this point. He says to to Stein. Um, what would it take for for you as an atheist and as a an avowed empiricist to um, to repent and believe the gospel and give your life to Christ and to acknowledge that there's something out here in the world beyond what you can see, taste, smell, touch? Um, and Stein came back and he says, "Well, <clears throat> I suppose if this podium, you know, podium in front of him, <laughs> he says, I suppose if this podium began to levitate and floated across the room, um, I would." concede the possibility of the supernatural and i love it bonson comes back and he says no you wouldn't you know what you'd do if that happened (laughs) he says you would say that there is some you know heretofore unknown undiscovered scientific explanation explanation for what just happened and what is i mean he's absolutely of course he's right like what is he doing there he's trying to say look the presupposition of your heart is already pivoted against God. It, it's not, at the end of the day, a question of having sufficient evidence, because if it were, the evidence is all around you. I mean, the whole created order shouts the glory of God. And and to your point earlier, whether it's the is-to-ought problem, mm-hmm. or whether it's, you know, not being able to... I, I mean, I think, I, think the, I think the strongest argument in favor of, of God's existence and of... of I mean, I think... God's tr- being triune, not just God's existence in some deistic sense, but yeah. but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Christ is the the Redeemer, um, turns on uh, the impossibility of the contrary. Yeah. Right. So so that you can't have any kind of knowledge, moral conclusion, things that you hold dear, apart from that being true, apart from a holy God mm-hmm. who has a holy standard mm-hmm. and before whom you know deep down that you are accountable and are in trouble yeah. before. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that another maybe way to put the nail in the coffin for free thinking is the term itself is its own destruction. Think of it this way. To think implies what? That, you, that you're using rational laws of logic? Well, how can you think freely unless you are in submission to the laws of logic? Laws of logic dictate how you think. Mm-hmm. We can't... I mean, you can't even think if those laws didn't exist. It would be pure chaos. It would yep. be irrationality uh, uh, to the nth degree. And so to say that you're a free thinker, I mean, thinking implies, it, it assumes that there are laws of logic in how we reason through things. Exactly. So the, right there, it, and, and another thing that would probably destroy it is like, if you had a free thinker, I suppose you, there only could ever exist one. Because if you ever had a group of free thinkers that thought the same thing, you would, by definition, defeat all free thinking. I mean, think about that, right? It's like the uh, the pure individualist society. Hmm. Like we, I belong to the radical individualist society. Really? And did you elect a president? Yes, we did. Oh, so are you radical individualist, or did you make a group? You know, so it's like the free thinking. I don't know the free thinking group. 
of people that think the same way yeah how does that work yeah well this is i think this is this is what we mean exactly that point is what we mean by the impossibility of the contrary you can't have any you can't draw conclusions you can't assume from an unintelligible you can't derive intelligence from what otherwise might pe some people think is an unintelligible universe That's true. deriving intelligence from non-intelligence deriving law from whence there was no law yeah. whether it's laws of logic i mean laws of logic are themselves things that are uh, you know non tangible that, right. that you know are not things that can be uh, observed in, in in the strictest sense now you mm. might say you can you can observe them through through laws of language laws of language bear out laws of logic but even then you're you're appealing to some kind of law you're standing on the That's shoulders right. of something some kind of system that makes uh, that makes the whole conversation intelligible exactly. in the first and place and you can't break free from that yeah because you live in God's universe yeah so he he created the universe accordance with various laws that he put in place and you can't escape that and we have to live that way right yeah. i mean to your point earlier about hume i mean hume's problem of induction not knowing that the same thing is going to be happening tomorrow based on what we experience today i mean we in society broadly agree that cars fall down and not up yeah yeah we agree on that well i mean we don't know every we can't go and test every single instance of that i mean have you seen every single car and every single and even if you had you don't know that you wouldn't see some car someday that might fall upwards tomorrow yeah yeah so so all of that to say that you know we have to make certain presuppositions mm -hmm. about the world in order to live and move and have our being in it that's right and now the question is this what is the right set of presuppositions. And what's the final authority? And what is the final authority? So ultimately, some people will say, well, every every kind of rationale is circular. Logic itself is ultimately yeah. circular. And they'll say that for, for this very reason. Um, and so you, you might look at, some people will look at presuppositional apologetics and say, well, you're just arguing in a circle, um, to, to which the response is, well, you don't realize it, but you're arguing in a circle too, the difference is my circle is not vicious and it encompasses all of that which is considered true in your circle. So all of the things you take for granted in what you call reality is encompassed within my circle, right? So like at the end of the day, you do not have a ground to any ground to stand on apart from the triune God of scripture. And this ultimately is where we're going to come back to this question of authority yeah right in in scripture and in how god reveals himself there is a way out of the morass of postmodernity precisely in the notion of christian revelation that it's god who breaks into human experience mm. to speak words that mm. he expects us to understand and obey mm. and and to cherish and to pray like he breaks in as so i mean ultimately are we saying that this is um not uh, modernity, but pre pre modern epistemology, mm. where you get all kinds of things like you know God's you know there's you know, in a medieval period you know maybe there's there's alchemy and there's ghosts and there's the spirit world and yeah. you know and it doesn't even have to be I mean in some parts of the world even today that hold to those kinds of ways of thinking and their their epistemology is pre modern. The different and see now you're kind of getting into this question of religions mm -hmm. and you're getting into this question of you know presuppositionalism validated in a context that is ex that is christian where god is triune revealing himself in god's word in his word as opposed to you know uh, pantheistic religions or, mm -hmm. or any kind of pagan structure of thought yeah even then you have the impossibility of the contrary in order to make sense of the world and i would argue that that is rooted and based exclusively in a christian context i might so gordon stein who was, you know, the atheist debating Greg Bonson might come along and say, um, you know, well, you don't, you don't believe in Zeus, you know, you don't believe yeah. in, you know, uh, the Muslims' conception of Allah, and I might say, yeah, you're right, and I will join you, Gordon Stein, <laughs> in debunking those other false notions of, of false gods. Yes, um, because I would only be defending that which is uh, the God as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. So the idea that. Uh... <laughs> that it's it, it's based on God's revelation. Yes. That we are, um, if we were here all by ourselves and God refused to talk to us, then then perhaps the the postmodern person would be right. Right. In saying, well, there is no truth because, in a way, nothing's been revealed to us. I mean, really, something is true. Something is a fact because God has already 
known it and declared it to be a fact. Including 2 plus 2 equals Including 4. Including 2 plus 2 That's equals right. 4. That's I mean, right. God That's knew, a created fact. Exactly. God knew it and ordained it before yes. we did. Yes. And in a sense, all knowledge that's genuine yeah. is derivative. Exactly. It's, Amen. That's it, exactly right. We derive right. it from our Lord and Creator. That's exactly right. And the question is, are we going to acknowledge that or not? That's it. And that, that does not mean that the Bible is a textbook of physics. No. It doesn't mean that, right? It doesn't mean that no. science is, is any less of a worthwhile endeavor. It is a, it is a, a tremendously worthwhile endeavor because mm-hmm. it, it, it uncovers the how given to us by the who, right? And, and it, it uncovers how God's world works such that when we discover new scientific truths, that these things should rightly arise in us a, a a yearning to cry out to God's glory for for that truth, mm-hmm. for how he has done it and mm-hmm. what he has done and how beautiful God is for having done it in just that way. Yeah. I mean, I think the foundation of science itself is, of course, you know, that understanding of, yeah. of God. Because, yeah, that's right. Because we, this, we, we, when you actually do science, you are assuming that the created order is intelligible, can be analyzed and actually functions in a predictable manner. It's repeatable. That the laws of yep. nature don't change. That's right. I mean, if you live in a random universe of chemical reactions that are completely random, yeah. there's no point in doing tests or experiments because tomorrow they could all be different. Yeah. The law of gravity could change. And this is where you know someone like a Richard uh, Dawkins might tip his hat to the Christian heritage and say, okay, it has to be granted that um, you know that that science was you know it, it was born out of mm-hmm. theistic a theistic cradle. Yes. Um, but, you know, we've we've moved beyond that. He would and, say and, we've moved beyond yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. But but now um, you, we are still operating as if the truths in that cradle hold true. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and so, well, anyway. Yeah. So this is not ultimately ab- about science, but it makes the point about, you know, when we're talking about free thinking, we're, we operate and live and move and have our being. This is God's world, right? Yes, yeah, and And we live in that world, you know, have, we all have what Calvin called the sensus divinitatis. We have the yeah. sense of divinity sense within divine, us. Yeah. We, we are all made image in God's God. image. That's right. And we can't, but what that, what that implies is that we can't not know him, right? Mm. We have consciences that are maybe seared and, you know, certainly Hitler's moral compass is not, you know, someone <laughs> else. You know, quite twisted. C.S. Lewis's moral compass. Like everyone has, you know, their own kind of moral compasses. We don't conclude from that, therefore, yeah. that the, all of those moral compasses are are moral equivalents of one another. And so now the question is, who decides? Yeah. What's the arbiter? Only God who reveals himself can arbitrate between mm-hmm. those things. Yeah. And that does bring us then to the second part. Of or- authority. Yeah. yeah. The question, what really the first part of the question yeah. is authority and specifically the question of Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, church first or God's word first. And, you know, this is, it's a very timely uh, question because uh, a good friend of mine in the church, uh, Chuck, I don't know if you're listening, Chuck, but uh, uh, I appreciate uh, you bringing me into the discussion that uh, that Chuck had with uh, his coworker. That's right. He did share that. Who yeah, was a that. Russian Orthodox. Yeah, yeah. And so we got into a, a good discussion via email about the final authority. And uh, you know, is it did, did did the church give us God's word? Is the church the final authority, or is the word of God the final authority? Right. So I think that's the fundamental thing. And of course, I think you and you and I would both agree that it's the word. Of yeah. God, and that's the final authority, yeah. and that the church receives the word. Correct. The church doesn't dictate what the word is, and I think it's, it's, it's pretty easy to see that. I mean, I know some people have a really hard time with it, but like just considering, for example, that um, we see in, in in the scriptures itself that uh, scripture was already being viewed with authority before the church ever officially declared it to be. Uh, uh, the word of God, let's say, in an official sense. Yeah, I right? agree with that. So before there's a list of canonical books that's presented or or perhaps even voted on, quote-unquote, by a council, um, we already know that there are texts, that the scriptures are being used authoritatively. And let me give you an example. In Second Peter uh, chapter 3, so this is, this is a letter uh, from uh, the apostle Peter, Here's what he says at the, at the end of that chapter, starting in verse uh, 14. Uh, Therefore, beloved, 
since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So I'll, I'll stop there. And, the, and I want to focus in on uh, 16, uh, verse 16 there. So here's what we see from, from Peter. Peter is already familiar with at least some of Paul's letters, some of them. Um, he says it in the plural. And he, he puts Paul's letters in the same category as Scripture. He says, you know, regarding uh, the twisting of of these texts as they do the other scriptures. So right there, Peter is, is saying, yeah, Paul's got some hard things to say that are, that are really difficult to understand, but uh, his letters have been written. Um, I ha I'm familiar with a couple of these letters, you know, and people twist them just like they do the rest of the scriptures, the other scriptures. So what is Peter there doing? He's already recognizing the authority of Paul's letters in, in, a, in, a, in a divine manner, really, yeah. Yeah. before there's any list. That's that's being given. So, so to say that, well, the church that we didn't have the Bible or we didn't have God's word until the church declared it to be so, is so simply not um, the experience that we see in the early church. Does that, does that make sense there? Yeah, I would agree with that. So, so there. I think you know when we're when we're talking about you know what exactly the church did and you, you use mm -hmm. the word the church received the bible received mm -hmm. the scripture mm -hmm. as that which it is which mm -hmm. is from god which i agree with that language wholeheartedly um one thing about kind of like what those what some of those councils were doing it and to to oversimplify they they when they're looking at different documents to to receive scripture as scripture they were essentially looking at three criteria Number one, they wanted it to have um, apostolic origin, mm -hmm. right? Number yes. two, they didn't want them to just be regional documents. They wanted documents that had been widely circulated. Yeah, and uh, recognized and received Recon exactly. by the whole church. And number three, they insisted that it be faithful to the historic gospel of Christ, right? Yeah. So you have these three kind of criteria, but in no case did they think that they were um, creating scripture. In no case did they think that they were uh, imparting some of their own kind of like— um, authority onto script. So like, I, I'm not sure that um, the the perspective of what the early church and the councils thought they were doing is, is exactly right. Um, but this does tie back to the earlier question of authority, right? Because now the, here's really the question, which is mm -hmm. what we, we ended on the last point with, which is, you know, how do we know the Bible is from God? How do we know it's God's word? How do we know it's our ultimate authority? Mm -hmm. um, so there's, different, I mean, of course, different ways to answer that. But yeah. one of the answers that comes along that, that I think is wrong, but it's, but it's very prevalent, and it gets to this person's uh, question, which is, you know, ultimately, Scripture is not our ultimate authority. Scripture is the Word of God because the church compiled it, right? Mm. The church was given a divine deposit of authority to compile the Scriptures. So because the church gave us the Scriptures, the church in its tradition is our final authority. Um, mm. so, yeah. it, so that, I mean— that view, it sounds like, is something close to what this person yes. is articulating. And that's a view that's very similar to the Roman Catholic position as yes. well. Yeah. That the, you have the three-legged stool. Yeah. This is the Roman Catholic position, by the way, as far as the magisterium, so the current, the current church authority structure, the people, the pope, the cardinals. You have the traditions, okay, so all the past writings, and then you have the scriptures. Now, what's interesting about that is they say it's a three-legged stool, right? But the problem is, is that the magisterium or the current church, they get to decide what is and is not scripture, okay? They also get to decide what scripture means. Then they get to tell you what is and is not tradition, and they get to tell you what tradition means. So in the end, it ends up being not a three-legged stool of equal authorities, but the magisterium is the top. Right. The current leadership has the authority to tell you what is scripture, what is tradition, and here's what it means. Yeah. They have the final authority. And that might not be what Rome thinks it's doing, but in uh, practice. In practice. Yeah. So, like, I, I, I know this is the question, the context was about Eastern Orthodoxy. It just, a lot of similarities, it, though. Some, yeah, like, yeah. It, what comes to mind for me, I mean, I have a Roman Catholic friend, you know, really bright guy, 
Um, and a very able man. Again and again, what, what he and I would find when we would discuss things is um, the doctrine of sola scriptura would, would be a point oh, yeah. of, of disagreement. Yep. Um, oh, it's not in the Bible. Yeah, because, yeah, w- exactly. Whenever we disagree, I go to the scripture and I say, you know, what do you do with this passage? But he, do- he doesn't engage there, right? He says, well, what does the Roman Catholic Church teach? What do their catechisms say? Because his authority isn't scripture. And I would imagine it might be a little bit different, um, a little bit of a different lens for this for this person from, from mm-hmm. Eastern Orthodoxy, but similar question in terms of uh, authority and, and what the ultimate authority is. Yeah. So I remember... Um, this was a couple of years back. I was at a bachelor party and, uh, Uh-oh. yeah, <laughs> we were a pretty tame bunch. I mean, you know, we'd hit the beach, we'd come back and play board games all night. It was that one of those things. Risk. Yeah. Risk. Exactly. <laughs> but I remember at one point in this night, my, my friend who I was just talking about, he asked me, so Dylan, do you hold the Holy Scriptura? And you know, of course you, you smell a trap and you know, you want to be bold. I was like, <laughs> it's a trap. And like, Akbar comes out. Yeah. It's a trap. It's a trap. Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, ultimately, I, I do hold the sola scriptura, scriptura. And he says, so where in Scripture do you find that? So mm-hmm. when you say Scripture alone is the authority, is that in Scripture? Mm-hmm. Right? And that's a fair question because you don't see those words anywhere. But neither is the word Trinity. What year? Yes. <laughs> Am I jumping the gun on that one? Well, kind of. I mean, I, I think – so when I, when I would talk about sola scriptura, not to take us off on too much of a tangent, yeah. but I think, I think typology really um, – seals that deal in, in yeah. my mind. I think you see as, it in practice. It might not be in the words, but I think the way that the Bible assumes itself and how people act in the Bible implies sola scripture. Well, that, and I think that scripture is self-authenticating. I and agree. I, th- I think, it, yeah, exactly. And I, I think it can be demonstrated. I think, I think that scripture's self-authenticating nature can be, is proven out in many ways. I think one of the key ways mm-hmm. is, is typology. Yeah. Here's uh, uh, one, uh, this is, one example that I, I tend to, to use is uh, Mark chapter 7. And this is a context where Jesus is, <laughs> he's correcting a tradition of the Pharisees, right. right? Now, the Pharisees, by the way, they're pretty, they're pretty knowledgeable, and they can trace their lineage back to, back to Moses, and they would trace their traditions back to Moses as well. But here's what uh, the beginning of chapter 7, uh, the Gospel according to Mark says. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come to, from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do, well, I'm sorry, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honors me, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he, Jesus, said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do." Now, I'll stop there. So, yeah, he, he first, it's initiated by the Pharisees accusing him of having undefiled hands. So, yeah. maybe a tradition that's, that's not so bad to, to wash yourself, but then Jesus returns it on them by saying, well, here's this tradition of Corban. Now, for those who might not be familiar, the Corban rule was that, I believe, if you... If you declared that some wealth of yours or property of yours was going to be dedicated to the temple, to God, so to speak, uh, you could maintain control of it and, and use it until you die, and you were not obligated to spend that on your parents. So basically, it was a way that you could avoid taking care of your parents and just say, well, this has already been dedicated to the Lord, mom and dad. Yep. You know, so, and even though I'm not dead yet, 
I'm going to maintain it and steward, you know, be a steward over it until I die, but I can't, you can't use it. Yeah. You're like, treating the, you're treating the, te- the temple as a, as an offshore shelter. That's an offshore bank account. Yeah. Bank account. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the temple. It's just, but it's just to get away, you know, to get around this law about taking care of your, your family. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a, it's a tradition of the elders and the Pharisees. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't try to challenge them with another tradition or say, let's have a, let's have a council about it. He goes back to the word of God. Yep. That's it was, how he corrects them. That ultimately, it was a misunderstanding and a misapplication of God's word. Yeah. So now, now here's uh, just just so that to, yeah. to tip hat a little bit because I don't yes. want to I don't want to throw we're not we would not espouse solo scriptura, which is just yes. me and my Bible under a and, tree. Uh, under a tree and you know councils and the and the heritage of the church be be darned. No, no, you know, we would no. never say that. No. Like two two Thessalonians two fifteen. Uh, stand firm and cling to the traditions that you were taught, right? So, mm-hmm. like, there is a place for tradition. So, if, if, for example— And we all have them, by the way. And we all Everyone have has a tradition. We all have traditions. I mean, yeah. yeah. The passing of an offering plate is a tradition, by the way. Like, Protestants yeah. at our best have—now, there's a lot of, you know, less helpful examples. Yeah. But Protestants at our best have always esteemed the teachers and traditions of the church. You know, when—, when you could you could look at Calvin's Institutes, for example, and really see it as a as you know when he's uh, arguing with with Rome and he's engaging Rome. In some ways, Rome is trying to claim Augustine. Mm-hmm. Calvin says, you know, Augustus totus nostris. Augustine is totally ours, right? But what is he saying there? He's saying we are the tradition. You who are saying that you're holding tradition to tradition, you're actually breaking from the fountainhead of that tradition, which mm-hmm. is Scripture. So. And it's, it's true that the church has progressed and reached consensus on a lot of issues that have been handed down in ancient creeds. So, like, you know, the church isn't debating if Christ is fully man or fully God anymore. Yeah. Right? We, we settled that at the first council of Ephesus in 431 AD. Christ is both fully God and fully man. And if you deny that, you're a safe distance outside the camp of God's people. And so we praise God for that council and our doctrinal unity. And if you ask, you know, does that council's conclusion have authority? The answer is of course it does. But it's based on what? But the ne- yeah, exactly. That's where we depart. How do we test the council's conclusion? The conclusion is authoritative, but not because the council said it. It's authoritative because it aligns with and can be tested by scripture. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, you're you're an army or maybe not army, but air air force military guy. Military guy. Yeah. Like you've got if you're a private, you know, you better listen to your sergeant, you know, and the general's authority is higher than that. So there is there is rank and order for for yeah. authority. Yeah, now I find it interesting though when people bring up councils like so when those council men sat down together did they say to each other now listen we are in an official council so we have the final authority uh is, yeah did they really say that no they used scripture to back up the argument right so I, I I've used this example before uh um Arius was one who denied the uh, divinity of Jesus so Arius was a was a heretic and uh, uh, or declared to be so a heretic, but he taught that there was a time when the son did not exist. Hmm. Okay, yep. so he he believed that Jesus was not basically was not divine, and Athanasius and and, and many others were arguing you know, in favor of obviously the divinity of Jesus. And when they went to the council, you know, <laughs> Arius was wrong before the council met. Correct. I mean, he was yeah. wrong based yeah. on the word of God. And the council didn't just stand on their own laurels and say, well, we're a council. We just get, we just declare that you're wrong, Arius. No, they quoted from scripture. Yeah. So they based all their arguments on scripture. So it's kind of almost silly to say, well, I follow the council. The council has final authority. Yeah, but what did the council do? Did they, if, if they didn't need scripture, then why did they quote it? Why didn't they just declare from the, from their own whim that yes um, we're right and you're wrong and how could Arius how could anyone know that Arius was wrong until the council had met right right yeah so that's I guess that's the point well there. so so you know in the question I want to I do we've kind of been talking about it you know conceptually at a high level I do want to come to a a ground mm-hmm. level response to the question yeah. that was raised so you know essentially we didn't have the Bible for three centuries the church gave us the Bible the church is then the authority um, so let's I would want to say three things to that. Yeah. Okay. First, the church does not predate the scriptures. Okay? Well, so the yeah. church may may predate the New Testament in its reception, but the church at the time of the New Testament was still reading and citing the scriptures, the Old Testament. 
to prove that Jesus was the Christ from the Old Testament. The Bereans. That's exactly right. The second thing I would say is yeah. that God's word was spoken through the apostles while they were alive. And that word had authority whether it was written or unwritten. Mm -hmm. So like the point here is that the church had greater authority than the New Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. But but God's word does not have to be written before it's ultimate and authoritative. Yeah. The third and biggest problem, I think, with this view is this. So I'm going in order from, you know, uh, least, least strength yeah. to most strength. So yeah. I think this is the biggest issue. Um, in the first century... So it's true that the apostles had authority to proclaim and write God's word. But here's the issue, right? The further away you get time-wise from the original apostles, the more difficult it becomes to verify who truly represented the voice of apostolic authority. So competing voices arose, competing traditions arose. And after, right? Yeah, and after the yeah. first apostles died and their contemporaries died, it eventually became impossible to prove anything can be of apostolic origin unless you proved it how by appealing to what they wrote, by appealing to scripture. Because eventually they die. You cannot identify which successors are truly in the lineage of the apostles unless that lineage can be verified by what the apostles wrote. So humanly speaking, they're dead. So the only way we know if we're in line with the original apostles is through scripture. Yeah. Um, you know, some teachings like the church, for, you know, from the church really are clarifying scripture. Like you mentioned the Trinity or the two natures of Christ. We praise God for those teachings and for the counsels that pointed them out. But if, a if it's a teaching that rests on any ground beyond the text itself, then you've moved from clarifying scripture to creating scripture. And what we would want to say to, you know, our, our Eastern Orthodox friends is that, you know, at least from, from a Protestant perspective, um, by, by abandoning sola scriptura, we may be abandoning the actual tradition that, that this person holds so dear. Yeah. So. Like, I, I personally, I believe that Sola Scriptura is in line with the tradition of the church. Yes, so, so like, Tatian the Assyrian was a church father, a disciple of Justin Martyr who lived between 120 and 180 AD. Mm. He talks about his conversion experience, and he says, the words on the page evidenced themselves to be from the voice of God. And St. Augustine, who lived in the fourth century, said, mm -hmm. I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to those canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. So... These were men confessing the divine power and authority of Scripture, even above tradition. And they were in line with our Lord Jesus, who said exactly what you mentioned in Mark 7. You have a fine way of making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. Mm -hmm. So God promises to build his church, but on the sure foundation of the word. Nowhere does God promise that his church will be free from error. Yeah. But the word of God cannot err any more than God himself can err because it is his word. So yeah. that I would say, at the end of the day, the church, that's why I would say, did not create scripture. It received scripture. Yeah. And that's why that language is so important. Yeah, I agree. One analogy that I've found helpful and I've used it before is the analogy of a, of a, of a father talking to his children. Yeah. So for example, if I give a command to my oldest, Aubrey, and I and I tell her to I tell her to go tell the other children, it's time, it's time to make your bed or it's time to clean up the toys, right? Um, does my daughter, my oldest, have authority? In a way, she does. She has conferred authority. She has authority to speak to the other two children on my behalf. She could be my messenger, but her authority only uh, applies insofar as she's faithful to what I commanded her. If she goes and twists my words and changes my words, her authority goes away. Because yeah. now she's subverting my authority and she's disobeying the command that I asked her to pass to my other children. And the other thing about that analogy is this. When you speak to your children, do they hold a counsel about whether or not that word is authoritative or it's from you? No, your words are self-authenticating. Correct. They hear your yeah. words and they automatically carry with them weight and authority. And there does not need to be a, you know, the children don't sit around and say, okay, we heard a voice. It sounded like daddy. I'm not really sure. Let's have a debate about it. Actually, let's have a council. Who here thinks that that was daddy's voice? No, no, that's silly. They receive it. And it, it is, it, it, I think that analogy ties in a little bit with... Jesus' own words in John 10, 
where he says, my sheep my will sheep hear, will hear my, my voice. voice. Yeah, that's right. And they will follow me. They will not hear the voice of a stranger. And so there, that analogy of father to children stands firm. And those counsels, those creeds, they are authoritative only insofar as they line up with the word of God. Yeah. And when they deviate, just like when my children twist my words, they lose authority because it's not theirs. It's, uh, it's derived from a higher authority, the origin, the source, which is, in the case of a parent-child, the parent Correct. telling the children how it is. Um, and, and to give one quote from another early church father, uh, Cyrus of Jerusalem hmm. lived in 350 AD or so, and here's what he said in one of his lectures. For concerning the divine and holy mysteries of the faith, not even a casual statement must be delivered without the holy scriptures, nor must we be drawn aside by mere plausibility and artifices of speech. Even to me who tell you these things, give not absolute credence unless you receive the proof of the things which I announced from the divine scriptures. For this salvation which we believe depends not on ingenious reasoning, but on demonstration of the holy scriptures. I mean, if that's not sola scriptura, yeah, he didn't use the word sola scriptura, but it's there. Yeah, That's what he's saying. That's what he's arguing. It's the Bible's self-authenticating authority. And the early church believed it. I, I think so, yeah. That, yeah. That, that to me is really, that, that's, that's part of the rub there. I mean, at least the first me. 500 years. I mean, maybe yeah. after that you start deviating down. That doesn't mean that every you didn't have the occasional church father who stepped no, in it. You know what I mean? Of like not. you have plenty of folks who step in it today. <laughs> um, you know, of course you can find this or that. You know, uh, church father who's you know shanghaied by I don't know neoplatonic categories or whatever. You know, of course, but yeah. but that doesn't mean that um, you know at the end of the day when we are talking about the self-authenticating nature of scripture as our ultimate authority as Christians. Um, now, validating that and like, how do we go and tease that out and, um, and you know, prove that out and validate that? So that is a worthwhile exercise that mm -hmm. I think we could totally tackle another time. Cause like I, I hinted yeah. at it earlier. Like I think that, um, I think one of the strongest um, proofs of that, of that, which is, which is true, is the, uh, is the typological structures and threads within scripture. Um, I think that that's just, it's, I'm, you know, maybe I'm a little bit just too uh, enamored by it, but you know, you, you don't want to com commit bibliolatry, but I no. think in that you, you start to, you know, just as, just as Moses was permitted through the cleft of the rock to see the yes. trailing edge of the glory of God. Yes. I think, you know, seeing the way the Bible fits together as a whole and seeing these threads come together like ligaments from yeah. Genesis to Revelation, you can almost start to see something of the mind of God and weaving it all yeah. together for his glory. Yeah. And that is a tremendous thing. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, I, I would love to just kind of like walk through that, that through and, you know, not in this episode, but in another episode. Yeah, good. Just, I mean, the theme of word is powerful. And I think yeah. it, I mean, you have the written word and then the word made flesh, right? Yeah. yeah. The divine word made flesh, Christ himself, the logos, yep. if you will. Um, before we go into proverb of the day, I do want to uh, end with a quote or a quote. I mean, well, it's a quote from the scriptures from Ephesians chapter 5, uh, a section that's usually uh, it's considered to be about wives and husbands. But I want, I want to point out the interesting analogy here that, uh, that Paul lays out, uh, starting in verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And I think we could do some more uh, diving into that theme of the word, but it seems pretty clear here that what is it that Jesus is washing and cleansing his bride, the church, with? Yeah. It's, it's the word. It's the word. So the, the bride isn't, isn't determining what the word is. She's receiving it and being washed by it. Yeah. The churches. And so that's the I think that's the relationship that we could we should see with uh, between the church and uh God's word yeah. there. There's like there's plenty like Psalm one thirty eight yeah. two. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. 
you know, Psalm one, blessed is the man on uh, who, who meditates on God's law day and night. There are yeah, passage awesome. after passage yeah. after passage that exalt the word of God yeah. and, and that have us now receive it as God's word as mm-hmm. inerrant and ultimately authoritative and mm-hmm. self-authenticating, mm-hmm. um, and, and the fact that every strand therein points to Christ is is a beauty that cannot be contrived yeah. or or wrought through the compilations of men, even if even if you know human beings are the ones just oh we're we're picking and choosing certain documents and compiling them. There is just no way that we are compiling them in such a way that a we, that there's that there's freedom from error apart from God authenticating his own word yeah. and be in such a way that they, that every page would so magnificently point to Christ. This is not, it was, you, you want to leave all kinds of room for human, uh, activity in bringing the Bible together. Absolutely. Yeah. And it uses human language and human forms of speech and human emotion and, and, and people ultimately, yes, bringing together these documents and recognizing them for the authoritative word of God that they are, but at no point are they creating no. scripture. No, no, yeah. no. So to end, uh, we'll do a, a proverb of the day challenge for my brother Dylan here. And I have one Dylan for you that lines up very neatly with our topic okay. today. So it's Proverbs thirteen thirteen. Uh, so in our final few minutes here, we'll uh, see if uh, Dylan can handle this challenge and bring application uh, from this proverb. Here's the proverb. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. Okay. Whoever despises the word would br- uh, brings descri- destruction on himself. Um yeah, th- that is, let, let's take the first half first. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. That is really, I think, um, echoing a lot of other, uh, a lot of other passages in scripture where, you know, basically it's, it's saying, look, if you are going to despise the word of the Lord, or if you're going to break commandment, or if you're going to go off your own way, that person shall be utterly cut off. It's uh, Numbers chapter 15, mm. verse 31. Um, you know, Proverbs nineteen sixteen. whoever keeps the commandment keeps his life. Whoever despises his ways will die. There's this notion of um, if we are rejecting the Lord and rejecting his word, then we are on the path to destruction. On the other hand, revering the commandment brings reward. This, this, I think this proverb really ties nicely into some patterns of of language that we see in the Pentateuch of the, the first five books of the Bible, in particular, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Deuteronomy is is great at this, mm-hmm. laying out blessings and curses. Yes, right. So if you go this way, there's curses. If you go this other way, there will be reward. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that we see in that, like when we read, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. Um, a when we say, okay, well, we're, we're Clearly, we're talking about someone else, not me, Christian, who, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. no, like, that's not, that's not it at all. When we're reading this passage, we're, we're to be reminded of the reward that has been secured for us in the perfect obedience of Christ, because who alone revered the commandment yeah, unto reward that's perfectly? Right. Yeah. That's Christ alone. Only we him. are beneficiaries of that, of that grace. So despite the fact that we have despised the word and deserve destruction to be brought on ourselves, nevertheless, Christ revered his father's commandments and kept them perfectly and was ushered in reward through unto glory, right? Mm-hmm. Being raised from the dead and vindicated in his, in his sacrifice, never to die again, so that now we can be beneficiaries of that. So now we are like, oh my gosh, this is what Christ, Christ revered his father's commandment. He did this for me. What a, what a pleasure it is and what, a, what an opportunity it is and what a gift it is for us to no longer despise the word mm-hmm. where we wrought destruction in, the, in, our natural, in our natural person. But now we can embrace, we have, been, we have been freed from sin in Christ and through repentance to embrace and revere the commandment um, that, that otherwise, you know, someone in their natural estate in Adam 
would not be able to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think I look at this passage and I'm like, despise the word. We can see the word only for what it truly is as from God. When, when, as you pointed out, Jesus's words, mm. um, my sheep hear my voice. And through regeneration, the scales are dropped from the eyes of our souls yeah. that we can see this Bible. We can see God's word for what it truly is. And that is entirely of grace rather than despise it and poo-poo it and say, oh, you know, just full of contradictions and fairy tales and written by men in the Bronze Age. Yeah. Um, that is, that that posture brings destruction. Yeah. And if that's you out there today, I would just urge you to reconsider, urge you to, to look back again at this word that really does is a lamp to the feet of, of those who are following it, and it does bring life. Um, when you read the scriptures aright, you will find that they are reading you more than you are reading them. Yeah. Um, and I would just encourage you, get alone with God, get with this word, and revere his commandments, and that itself it brings much, much reward, all the more reward added to us who are already beneficiaries of, of God's grace in Christ. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Well, we are out of time today, and, and this has been uh, Two Guys in a Bible. Uh, quick update, we did get a new email address. You can still use the old one if you want to, but it's now the number two uh, podcast at gmail.com. So everything, uh, Facebook, the website, uh, Twitter, and the email address, it's all the number two uh, guys in the Bible. Uh, there. So, uh, and please check out our website at twoguysinabible.org. Uh, certainly, we would love to get uh, more email uh, questions to us. Uh, so, please do that. Um, you can also send questions uh, via the website just clicking on the link uh, at the top right corner of the page there. And, uh, and lastly, we would love to get uh, uh, reviews uh, if you're using like, iTunes or the podcast. Uh, reviews are always helpful, and uh, as long as they're five or, or, or so, you know, it can't be anything less than that. So, no, I'm just kidding. That's right. So be truthful, be honest, and because uh, and, we're, we're here to grow as well and to, and to bless you with it. So we pray that this has been a blessing for you today. Again, uh, thank you, Dave, for your awesome question. And uh, we will, I guess, see you all again next time. All right. God God bless bless you all.